is their sights so evil that people who go there never come back? Could the origin of these places be connected to extraterrestrial experiments? Probably not, but let's find out. to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the strange claims about alternative history and ancient aliens in popular media. Do their claims hold water to an archaeologist, or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 35, and it will be filled with mystery and evil places. Well, not really as it turns out, but we will look into parts of the Ancient Aliens episode Aliens and Evil Places, from Season 3, Episode 10. As noted, the quality of the alien claim has steadily gone downhill this season. So while the first half of the episode did offer some exciting things to talk about, the other half was a bit more vague and loose. So I decided to focus my effort on two of the mysteries in this episode, Aokigohara Forest, or as some have doubted it, the Suicide Forest in Japan. So we will talk a bit about suicide in this episode, there will not be anything graphic. I understand if someone might do skip ahead, you will find the timestamps in the show notes of this episode. And if you are struggling with the thought of suicide or self-harm, please ensure that you are okay and talk to someone. I have linked as many places to get help as possible within the show notes of this episode. After our stay in Japan, we will venture towards the Ural Mountains and look deeper into the Diatlov Pass incident. Could it be that nine experienced hikers met evil aliens? Or does a more plausible solution involve General Motors and Disney's movie Frozen? The other topics such as the Black Mountain in Australia and the giant copper cauldrons in Russia we will return to another day. Now remember that you find sources, resources and reading suggestions on our website diggingupancientaliens.com. There you also find contact info if you notice any mistakes or have any suggestions. And if you like that podcast, I would appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews that I heard so much about. Now that we've finished with our preparations, let's dig into the episode. As you step into the forest, the noise and alarm from the modern world slowly disappear. You make your way deeper into the woods. You start to hear the song of a Japanese white eye, the shatter-like singing of the bush warbler, and the familiar greeting of a cocoa bird. A fox seems to be calling on its mate in the distance, and while you enter the forest alone, there appear to be living creatures all around you. As you made your way toward the forest, the owner of a lakeside cafe stop you and ask a couple of questions. Maybe not too strange if you have the forest reputation in mind. The trees block out most of the sun, but it's not dark. You step out of the trampled path, trying to head deeper into the forest. 
The ground is covered in soft spongy moss and fallen leaves crunch beneath your feet. The smell of damp earth enters your nostrils and the soil seems still wet from last night's rain. Staying on the trail is encouraged but you can't help yourself. You find a clearing and have a bit of a rest beside a growth of Manthinium dilatatum or maybe more commonly known as the false lily of the valley. For a bit you contemplate the signs that are put up at the entrance of the forest. Strangely, such a beautiful place has become a synonym of suffering and death. While sitting down, having some water and basking in a few sunstreaks, you understand the name of the forest. Aikegohara Yukai translates to Blue Tree Meadow or Sea of Trees. But just like the woodland, there's something darker here. Mount Fuji, an old volcano, looms over the area. And so does the name the forest is associated with, the Suicide Forest. The Aikigohara Forest is indeed known to be a place where desperate people come to end their life. And I find it (laughs) utterly vile that the ancient alien proponents is trying to blame this on aliens or extraterrestrial. Mental health is one of the topics where pseudosciences need to keep their greedy hands out of it indefinitely. And as I mentioned above, we, we deal with a topic of suicide. So if you struggle with these thoughts, you should maybe pause here and go to the show notes where I link the linked places that offer you some help. And remember, it does get better. Now, the number of people who die every year by suicide is really high in Japan and has been for quite a long time. But it has been declining rapidly in recent years. And the government is working really hard to lower these numbers as much as possible. And in 2021, the government of Japan created the first minister post dealing with loneliness and suicide prevention. And the post went to Tetsushi Sakamoto. And before we deal with the claims regarding the Aikigohara forest, we might to look into why Japan has so many deaths by suicide. And this is not an easy question to answer, and there's not a single answer to it either. Several things are in play here, and several stops have been done on the topic. One of the things that sticks out is the cultural aspect of suicide. Japan does not have the same cultural stigma surrounding death by suicide as, for example, Europe or North America. Well, all countries under Christian influences tend to view suicide as something wrong with the religious connotation that suicide is a sin. And this religious influence has not, of course, been part of the Japanese culture in the same way. Some also attribute this acceptance of suicide to a concept referred to as amai, an idea discussed by psychoanalyst Takeo Doi about a need that's unique to Japan of depending on and being in good standing with others. The behavior is, according to Doi, highly Japanese. And in a society where the expectation of emotional dependence is strong, individuals who cannot fulfill these expectations or feel overwhelmed may experience shame, guilt and failure. 
And as a result, some individuals may view suicide as a way to escape this societal expectation and to avoid burdening others with their perceived inequity. In Japan, the group is often put above the individual and if you misbehave, the group might use social isolation and shaming as a punishment. And this type of punishment can be very far-reaching and include more than family and peers. As Russell et al. points out in PCN, one of the more extreme form of restoring one's social standing within the society is to perform what's in Japan known as kakugo no isatsu or suicide of resolve, an act of trying to correct one's mistake by killing oneself. Historically, we see a strong tradition connecting suicide to mostly honor and the military, and the method of death by suicide is most known as seppuku. The earliest instance of this method is in a text called Chronicle of the Geography and Climate of Harima, written in 716 CE. According to the text, the first seppuku took place close to Lake Biva by a goddess due to a marriage dispute. And it would reappear in 1219 CE in the work Story of Ancient Matters, Volume 2. At that time it was the son from a noble family who turned to a life of thievery. And upon being cornered by the police in 989 CE, he died by seppuku. As the lordly rule in Japan started to disintegrate and was taken over by the emerging samurai class in the 10th century, seppuku started to increase. And this is due to the idea of valor within this class. Rather than being captured, they would die by their own hand instead. A famous incident involving seppuku involves Tametoto of the Minamoto clan in 1170 CE. According to the legend, and if you're squeamish, skip 30 seconds ahead. Upon being besieged and close to defeat, uh, Minamoto performed seppuku while standing and then proceeded to throw his entrails towards his enemy. And the practice grew and became part of the Bushido code and inspired the aesthetics of death among the samurai class. The practice grew and a new tradition formed as time passed, referred to as a yonshi or suicide to follow one's lord to the graves. Samurais connected to a lord would show their dedication and honor by killing themselves by seppuku. And these numbers became so large that there was an attempt to ban the practice in Japan. But even that could not stop this from still going on. And the most famous example of Yonchi is, well, maybe <laughs> maybe at least here in the West, the sore story of the 47 Ronin. Yes, it's a movie also starring Keanu Reeves. And I'm not sure why, but I kind of like that one. Now, seppuku became such a large part of Japanese high society that it got six voluntary variations. Hiketsu, when it was in battle. Inseki, when it was to uh, own up for your mistakes that you might have committed. Kanshi is a form of protest against the misconduct of your lord. Memboku when you were accused of something and wanted to prove your innocence. Then it was a sacrificial version offered by generals to save their families and men that would be and their men that they would be spared after their defeat. 
Lastly, we have Yanxi, which have by itself six subcategories, ranging from an advanced seppuku in anticipation of the Lord's death and something referred to as Ranbara. Now, this is when you committed seppuku to save your honor because all your peers had already done it. So it's basically seppuku due to peer pressure. Then you have three forced versions intended as different sorts of punishment with different variations. Now, I won't be graphical here, but let's discuss how seppuku was performed since uh, we're pretty deep into, into this now. And if you happen to be squeamish, you might want to skip ahead a couple of moments. Now, seppuku translates to cutting belly. So to perform the seppuku, you took a blade and then you cut your lower abdomen from left to right, not more than seven centimeters deep. If just slicing your belly is not painful enough, you would usually also hit organs that would, of course, increase the pain. This process could take several hours before you died from it, and in the beginning you were intended to sit through it with honor and courage. Later you would add a second who cut off your head after you had cut the abdomen in one true strike. And if they failed, the shame would fall upon them and their family, creating a new need for seppuku. There was also three different ways to cut your abdomen. In one motion, as we previously mentioned, and in a cross pattern, going left to right and then up down. And in the last version, there were two horizontal and one vertical cut. So suicide has for centuries been part of the Japanese culture. But the reason for suicide has, of course, shifted throughout the years. I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that there are as many different reasons as people, basically. But there are, of course, some reasons that occur more often than others. And in a study by Masahide Kode et al. in 2022, they looked at suicide during the COVID-19 pandemic. The leading identified cause among men to kill themselves by suicide was unemployment, followed by relationship distress, workplace relation, and the so-called Werner effect. Now among women, it's a bit different. The leading cause was alcoholism, followed by schizophrenia, caregiving fatigue, and economic problems. Of course, these changed throughout the years, but as we note, there is not a easy answer to Japan's suicide rate. And it's not only due to mental health issues, but it can be a combination of multiple things. So to solve this, we need to meet this with a multi-pronged solution. So armed with some background on the suicide in Japan, let's return to the forest. The alien proponents are trying to portray the area as mystical and evil as possible. Giorgio Sukalos, for example, say, this is a quote. There is no question that according to tradition, there are places that over time have become evil, that there is some type of a mystique going on there that is not good nature, but rather evil. Now, they don't really give any <laughs> excellent reason for why the forest would be evil or why evil, even uh, aliens would have caused it. Instead, they, they focus on death and gore and we see what's supposed to be 
the remains of people who have killed themselves here by suicide and they focus on clothes or other belongings that has been left behind in the forest and they don't really explore the area's history and instead they only focus on the number of people have killed themselves in the areas. Now, suppose that they were actually interested in telling a real story about the place. In that case, there is one to be said about the Akigohara forest, if they had decided to talk with some real expert instead of Giorgio and Bill Barnes, because there is an excellent documentary that could have been done here based on reality. Now, the Aikigohara Yucca Forest lay in the shadow of Mount Fuji, an old volcano responsible for the volcanic rock that the forest has as a floor. It's also part of the answer to one of the show's questions. Like the Bermuda Triangle off the coast of North America, Aokigahara Forest is also said to contain high levels of electromagnetic energy. If so... Might numerous recent sightings of UFOs near Mount Fuji be an indication that some sort of dimensional time-space portal might exist here, as ancient astronaut theorists believe? Since magma flowing out of the volcano tends to contain iron, lava have a natural magnetism. The level of which varies depending on the iron level in the ground and in some cases it might affect the compass. An issue here is that the iron concentration is relatively low within the area of Akigohara so to affect the compass you need to keep it directly on the ground. It will point towards the magnetic north if you hold it at an average compass operating height due to the lack of infrastructure in the area the army of japan has some of its training within the forests and they tend to use compasses throughout these exercises so it seems as they actually do work if you you know operate them properly mount fuji has a special place within the japanese religion both within shinto buddhism and other minor cults Several deities are associated with the mount Sakuya Hime, the goddess of Mount Fuji and volcanoes themselves. The mountain is an important religious pilgrimage to this day and some 400,000 people do the spiritual climb to the top of the volcano each year. Within the spiritual setting we find the first recorded instances of suicide in the forest. In 1340 CE, a Buddhist monk named Shokai killed himself in the act of Nyonjo. This is a practice where an ascetic monk goes on a diet of salt, bark, nuts, roots and tea. The diet is supposed to help preserve the body in a natural mummy after death. They are then closing themselves in a rock chamber underground where they meditate until they die. They believe that through this practice they will save the sinful world and the people within it. Bill Barn claims something rather strange about Mount Fuji. He says, quote, Mount Fuji in Japan is called a world navel. It is one of the many places on planet Earth where, according to legend, the earth meets the sky. People go to Mount Fuji for the express purpose of committing suicide, to release themselves from this life, to pass through the Axis Mundi, the world navel, 
into the next life, into a higher plane, and that would explain the high level of suicides at Mount Fuji. For for starter, no, this does not really explain anything, as we will know for sure at the end of this. But but the naval part is just bizarre for for a several um, number of reasons. Mount Mount Fuji is not referred to as the naval of anything, and it would not make sense in the Japanese culture to call it that. There are Description of caves, though, within the mountain where stones are referred to as umbilical cords. And this makes sense since there's an idea that the umbilical cord can tell the child's future. Barnes have just taken the Inca idea of the navel being referred to as the center of the, the world and then just started to cr- make a, create his own story around this. So there are some historical and religious tie to the area, but is this why many people are killing themselves here today? The connection to Mount Fuji does have some link to it, but a larger part of, this is not really the best word, but its popularity could be attributed to popular media, journalistic reporting or the Werther effect. In 1774, Goethe's novel The Sorrows of Young Werther was published. It was not long after you could see young men brooding around in yellow pants and a blue jacket. Some would, as the young main character Werther, kill themselves in a similar manner. As for Aikigohara, there is a famous Japanese novel that might have inspired some of the death here. In 1961, the novel Tamino or The Tower of Waves, written by the author Secho Matsumoto, was published. It had been published in a serial form in the 1950s before that, but the novel deals with the love between a married woman and a young prosecutor. And the novel seems to deal with taboos within the modern Japanese society, Unfortunately, the book is not officially published in English. In the end, the woman goes to the Aikigohara forest to die by suicide. And the story has become a bestseller in Japan and has birthed nine different TV dramatizations. So it undoubtedly has a special place within Japanese culture. It would not be strange that some have found their inspiration within this novel. Because we should not forget that the media have a paramount role in reporting on suicide and self-harm. I have followed the organization SAVES guidelines on dealing with the topic of suicide for this article. But describing the place as some sort of mystical horror forest where people go to die is quite untasteful for, for a several number of reasons. And as we have seen, the reasons why people come here to kill themselves are numeral and the background of the forest covers centuries of history and culture. Blaming it on an outside force that we can't control is not helpful and honestly quite predatory on people's suffering. Now I think we have a better understanding of the Aikigohara forest and the claims surrounding it. There is not one cause for its reputation, but we can improve it by changing how we speak about the forest. And if you're struggling with mental health or thoughts about self-harm, there is help that you can get. I've added as many suicide hotlines as possible to the show notes. And there's a lot of other help out there to get. And depending on your country and location, you can get help with your depth 
work relation or anything else you might struggle with, it does get better and it might take time, but yeah, it does get better. Now let's leave the forest and Japan and this topic for now, because we're heading east to the Ural Mountains in Russia. Could one of the most famous mysteries have been caused by a few ill-tempered aliens? The Dyatlov Pass incident might be beside the Bermuda Triangle, Loch Ness and Jack the Ripper, one of the most famous mysteries out in the world. Suggested explanations for what happened during the night of January the 1st, 1959, ranging from jetty attacks and avalanches to UFOs. Could we find some answers that might give us some insight to what happened on that night in those remote regions of Russia? And if you're unfamiliar with the story, the short version is that in 1959, students and people from the Ural Polytechnical Institute form a group for an expedition across the Ural Mountains. And the group was led and assembled by Igor Dyatlov and included nine other people. In total, there were eight men and two women within the group. They were all rather experienced hikers and this was far from the first expedition. Unfortunately, it would be their last. The goal was to hike from Sverdlovsk, a city today called Yekaterinburg, to the mountain of Oturten. The ancient alien proponents wrongly claimed that the mountain's name translates to Do Not Go There. The name is actually a play on another well-known mountain called Vottartan Shyakil in the Mansi language, and this would translate to the mountain that blows wind or wind mountain. The Mansi refer to Ortorten in their own language as Lund Kusap or Lund Kusap Shyakil, which can be translated to goose nest or mountain of the goose nest. And this is the issue with the Atlov incident, which occurred in Russia during the Soviet regime. First, we have a government that tends to classify everything big and small and still struggles somewhat with its, or <laughs> it still struggles with its openness. And add to this the language barrier. Most sources are purely in Russian, and even if you're good with the Slavic languages, they have a different alphabet making translating any text rather complicated. Add to this the 60 years of misinformation and popular science trying to sell the public a mystery. And we have quite the work cut out for us. To be honest, we might never know for sure what happened that night. However, there are some plausible theories out there. Then we have the idea like those we tend to cover on this show from Bill Barnes, for example. All nine hikers died. They were discovered by Soviet troops in various stages of what can only be described as being mutilated. Their bodies were burned. Some suffered radiation poisoning. In one case, a hiker's tongue was missing. They had prematurely aged, their skin was orange, their hair had turned gray. What could have explained this? If we go back to February the 1st of 1969, things had not gone as the group had intended. 
They were supposed to have gone through a valley, and the plan seems to have been to have to make camp on the other side of it. But due to worsening weather condition, poor visibility, and heavy snow, they seem to have gotten a bit lost and started to go westward, gaining elevation towards the top of Kyate Shökal, another massive name that translates to something like dead top. Likely due to the lack of vegetation and animal life on the top itself, after the incident we start to see another translation of the name, Mountain of the Dead, or similar spookier versions. And the reason why the, the group decided to make camp up there and not in the valley is a bit unclear. Maybe the visibility had gotten worse, they were just too tired, or felt that the shoulder of the hill offered a good amount of wind protection. When camping in the winter, a slope can be a good decision. What you want to avoid is a slope greater than 20 degrees due to the avalanche risk. Pitching the tent higher might also be preferred even if the winds are harder since wind and snow drift are less purulous than an avalanche. There are other reasons why higher is better when winter camping such as coal accumulates in the valleys. So for a person who has not done much camping in the winter the spot might seem strange but with experience as the Diatlov group would have it looks a bit less weird. The Diatlov group seems also to have constructed a sort of bivac shelter as we can see in one of the last pictures of the group adding some more perceived protection on the campsite. Now one danger with snow is that it can hide the slope of a hill quite well and when Russia reopened the Dyatlov investigation in 2009 after pleas from the Dyatlov Group Memorial Foundation, Andrei Kurakov, the prosecutor in charge, made a couple of new discoveries based on the photograph from 1951 recent service photogrammetry it Turned out that the location of the camp was in a steeper section of Kilatsiakal. This location is on a 30 degree slope and well within the range of avalanche danger. And in 2021, Yuan Guam and Alexander Pusrin published the Mechanism of Slab Avalanche Release and Impact in the Diatlo Pass incident in 1959 in Nature's Earth and Environment. In this paper they could show that it is plausible that the group was hit by a slab avalanche that's much smaller than your traditional avalanche. This could have happened due to the bivac they created when setting up the camp. First they dug through the fresher snow into a more rigid slab and probably when doing that fracturing the slab higher up in the slope. Then when the group passed the slab ultimately into a weaker layer and pitched the tent on the ground. Later in the night a part of the slab started to slide on the softer layer beneath it right into the tent. Now these layers were described by back in the day by investigations already in 1959. Guam and Pasring postulate that the slab was most likely the size of a SUV or another car and this would explain some of the damages the hikers got and why they would abandon the tent as they did. Two of the hikers, Ludmila and Alekseevich, were found to have two of the hikers, Ludmila and Alekseevich were found to have severe chest trauma that was most likely the cause of their death. 
and Nikolai had severe head injuries. And these damages, Guam and Pussering noted, were in line with the injuries that would occur when you get hit by a slab the size of a SUV. And to figure this out, they actually used the data from General Motors, who, in the 70s, hit corpses with different weights and speed. And this was to calibrate seat belts, though it turned out to be useful in other cases too. A little tidbit that I learned is that the researchers actually used the distance help to figure this out. Or rather, they asked the animators of the movie Frozen how they got those snow animation to be so accurate. And with the help of the specialists that had created a code for the animation, they could repurpose this to do avalanche simulations. And something that's often repeated is how the group was really experienced hikers. However, you might have all the experience in the world, but if your tent suddenly is hit by the soccer mom's primary mode of transportation in the middle of the night, you might take off too. They would have also feared uh, probably a larger avalanche and went downhill trying to seek an alternative shelter. And even if they panicked, they took the time to help their severely hurt friends in the process. Andrei Kuryakov's investigation could also show that the weather dipped towards minus 35 degrees Celsius. And the wind during this night could hit up towards 104 kilometers an hour. 14 million more kilometers and you have an official hurricane. It was not the best condition to venture out in, even with good equipment, equipment that they had left in the tent in the panic. I can imagine that the group was too fearful of returning to get their things, but in these conditions they would quickly succumb to the cold. Frostbite starts to set in within 10 minutes in these type of conditions. And we see signs of hypothermia, such as paradoxical undressing, when the body, even if it's extremely cold starts to perceive itself as extremely hot in self and the cause of the death for six of the group's members was just hypothermia the three others died from their injuries from getting hit by something now the strangest that some claims around the bodies are easily explained in some cases burns mention regarding radioactivity could have been caused in two ways either separately or in a combination. Lanterns during this period usually used a mantle made out of thorium, a radioactive material, to create a white, clear and long-lasting light. And this mantle needed to be replaced and also, of course, gave out radiation, especially when being burned. And also, we should add, there was the third largest nuclear power plant accident happened in this region, the Kerstim disaster in 1957. And the accident contaminated thousands of square kilometers of land with what's referred to as the East Ural Radioactive Trace. And this accident was covered up, of course, and unknown outside Russia until 1980s. But it turned out that one of the members worked at the plant and took part in the cleanup in the aftermath, Yuri Krivenchensko. And some also described the skin color of 
the bodies as orange. But I also find description that indicate that it was more of a deep tan. A tan on the face would not be too on especially. And every one of you who enjoy skiing might know the struggle with the goggle tan. The other claims usually brought up in the mutilation, as some call it, are signs of, you know, ordinary human decomposition. Remember that the rescue team did not find them the next day. It took them two months before someone came out that way. And two months are plenty of time for animals and natural processes to take place and relish in the, well, body that's left. And as a claim for the hair that, you know, the the hair had turned white or age seems to be be a bit of a dubious origin. And if the government now was trying to hide something strange, would they not just color the hair and put some makeup on the corpses if they now had an open casket for it? Now, Paul Stonehill claims that there was some attempts to hide the bodies. At the end, the bodies were buried in zinc coffins, I believe, so nobody would see. The zinc coffins did, in fact, make me think for a moment. But the issue is that the material zinc is not known to be well isolating towards nuclear material or other types of radiation. And zinc is mainly used for galvanizing steel and iron so it doesn't corrode. And it's a cheap ingredient for different types of alloys. And it's in the last part where we find why some of the hikers might have been buried in zinc coffins due to relatively cheap cost of production zinc coffins have been and still are used in russia for burials now again there is a chance that we never know for sure what really did happen on that night so long ago however this does not mean we don't have a decent understanding what the most likely cause might have been we don't need a lost yeti or evil aliens to really when reality offers a more plausible explanation a slab avalanche happened due to how they constructed the camp. Hurt, scared, and disoriented, they stumbled out of the tent. They helped their wounded friends to get out and away. But the elements soon took hold of them, and that's how the story unfortunately ended. And it's not a new story, and it's not most likely the last time we heard hear similar stories. The group might have been experienced hiker, but sometimes even the most skilled experts make mistakes. And in harsh conditions like these, even small mistakes might have significant consequences. Even today with all our gear and advanced equipment and access to training and experts, hundreds of adept climbers and hikers die or get injured on their trips. So we need to meet nature with a sense of respect and when doing this type of activity we kind of have to accept that there is a danger built in within it sometimes even the most experienced adventure might get in trouble and if you're really unlucky that might be the end of you and you don't need either aliens or yetis to explain that and this is where we live off well for this time at least. Remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or even better, to your friends. The show spreads even more if you're telling your friends and maybe give them a great episode that you really like and that you think that they will enjoy and get more people in here. 
I would also recommend that you visit diggingupancientaliens.com to find more info about the podcast and me if you like. You can also find me on most social media sites and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions or you're going to write that email in all caps, I see you, you find the contact info on the website. You find all the sources, resources used to create this podcast on the same place. You also find further reading suggestions if you want to learn more about the subjects that we bring up. Sandra Martelor created the intro music and our outro is by the band called Tralskruv who sings their song Tinfoil Hat. Links to both of these artists can be found in the show notes. Until next time, keep shouting that science! Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. <laughs>